about this, that when God says, put me first in your life, he doesn't say that as telling us to do that, but then he doesn't do it. He shows us by example that when he says, put me first in your life, make me first in your life, he's showing us, I sacrificed for you. I, I displayed this already for you. So when I ask you to do this for me, you can do it following my example of what we see Christ offering. Now, again, we said this, that it's a principle of first fruits. We don't actually expect anyone to bring a lamb in here. And we said this last week, please don't bring your lamb in here. Okay, we're not going to sacrifice anything. Okay, we probably would get a violation from the health department, probably be some lawsuits. I don't know what would go on. The carpet would get ruined. So don't bring something in here like that. But the principle, okay, of this idea of offering our first and our best to God is what we see all through scripture. So we unpacked that a little bit the first week. The second week or last week, we talked about some practical examples of that. We're going to review those and give you two other practical areas of our lives that we can put God first or show that God is first. We read from Revelation 2. We'll read it in just a moment. But I want to read kind of a quote that we've been mentioning every week that I think really summarizes the heart of this series. One author said it well when they said this. When God is first in your life, all things will fall into order. When God is not first in your life, nothing will be in order. And I don't know about you, but I can say amen to that. I've seen that true in my life. When I've put God second, third, fifth, tenth, fiftieth in my life, and I thought these other things needed to be first in my life, whether they be finances, career, relationships, hobbies, whatever they might be, not, by the way, not necessarily bad things, right, or or wrong things, just things that don't need to be in first place. It's amazing how there's a season of pleasure or joy and man, everything seems like it's going good, but give it time. And I promise you based on God's word, when you give it time, the longer you live with God, not in first place, the more chaos and disorder you'll see in your life and in your heart and in your mind and in your relationships. But what does it mean to put God first? Well, let me just tell you this. When you put God first and everything's going to be in order, it does not mean there's no trials and tribulations. And putting God first doesn't remove trials. Putting God first means when the trials come, he walks with me through the trial, and I know he's walking with me through the trial. So the strength and the courage I have in God is evident to me because I've been putting him first. I've been in his word. I've been in prayer. I've been communicating with him more than just on Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night. But it's a relationship and as I'm living in that relationship, putting him first, by the way, not to keep my salvation. So many people, I think they get saved, they receive the gospel, they, get, they receive Christ, they're redeemed. And then they start living this Christian life. And guess what happens? We find out, man, it's tough to live as a follower of Christ in the world today. And so things happen. We slip, we stumble, we fall. And some Christians, some believers battle with this idea that, God, do you still love me even though I fell? God, do you still love me even though I sinned over here? God, do you still love me even though I didn't put you first? And the resounding answer from scripture on every page of scripture is God screaming at us, yes. We are not saved by our works. We are saved by the grace of God. And from that salvation relationship, outflow of works come. And so when we talk about all of this, we have to understand it's not about I do these things. I put God first to keep my salvation. No, 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 no. I put God first because he has saved me and redeemed me and he keeps me for eternity. 
And so we want to unpack that more this morning. So let's look at Revelation chapter 2 and verse 1. We're going to read 1 through 5 as kind of when we started last week talking about this idea of a, of a great church that lost something. A great church that lost something. Revelation 2 and verse 1. Unto the angel of the church of Ephesus write these things, saith he that holdeth the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. Verse 2 of Revelation 2. I know thy works, and thy labor, and thy patience, and how thou canst not bear them which are evil. And thou hast tried them which say they are apostles, and are not, and hast found them liars. And hast borne, and hast patience, and for my name's sake has labored, and has not Fainted. We said this last week, it bears repeating. This is a good church. This, this church at Ephesus, man, if, if the Lord Jesus Christ came to North Goodland and, and appeared on this stage after we all got up off the floor, right? Which is what just happened. And he started saying those things to our church. I think we would be like, what? Like, do you really think that highly of our church? I mean, this is a good church and they're doing good things. This is not a horribly wretched church. I mean, for example, read 1 Corinthians and all that the church of Corinth was going through, and then read this. If you had to pick between the church of Corinth and the church of Ephesus, you would pick Ephesus. Well, we said it last week again, the leadership of Ephesus. Just think of the people in Scripture we know of that had involvement in Ephesus. you got the Apostle Paul, good leader. Uh, we said this last week, very good leader. you got Timothy strong preacher of the word of God. And you've got John, the apostle, you know, John that wrote scripture, John. These are the three leaders we know of that have involvement in the church of Ephesus. Great church, strong church, good church. Verse four. Nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee because I was left thy first love. Remember therefore from whence thou art fallen and repent and do the first works or else I will come unto thee quickly and remove thy candlestick out of this place, except thou repent. That is not a loss of salvation. Okay. We're not going to unpack all of that, but that is not a loss of salvation. What it's saying is you need to repent and turn from these things so I can use you as I desire to use you in the world. I can't use you like I want to use you because you've left your first love. The Bible says, so repent of that, turn back to your first love, and turn back to your first works. Charles Stanley says it so well. God created us for an intimate relationship with himself. That's a powerful thought, isn't it? I mean, did you ever stop and think about that? God created you to have a relationship with you. That's hard because there's times I don't like me. I have a hard time hanging out with me. But the Bible says that God created you for a relationship with him. He goes on to say this, and developing that relationship must always remain our top priority. Working for God must never replace loving God. See, the church of Ephesus fell into a, a trap that many believers, many churches can fall into today. They're a good church. They're a sound church. They're preaching truth. They're standing on the word of God. They're, I love that it says they're, they're, they're testing apostles, those that would come and say, I'm an apostle of God. And they would compare that person to scripture and realize, no, you're not. They're, they're doing all these things right. They're doing all these things good and well. And, and by the way, verse 3 ends with, and they've not fainted. They're, they're enduring persecution. Ephesus, Ephesus at this time was full of idolatry and wickedness. 
And this church stood as an example of what it meant to stand for God and to stand for Christ. But in their hearts, they drifted. The Bible says they left their first love. See, our foundation for everything we do as a follower of Christ is that he first loved us, so therefore we can now love him. And if we don't remember that, if we don't keep the relationship of, with Christ as foundational, we end up doing all this stuff for God, but we don't have a relationship growing with God. We have to keep it in check. And so now that we understand our foundation, as we talked about last week, that our foundation is growing in a loving relationship with Christ, that that truly has to be first place. I want to walk through four practical areas that I believe we can place God first in our lives. And so if you're taking notes, four simple truths, really easy stuff today, but I want to encourage you to think this through for yourself. This is not a sermon for someone else. This is not for the person behind you, beside you, around you. This is not for that person you know that isn't even in church right now. This is for you. We do this so often. We, and I've done this before too. I'm like, man, I wish so-and-so was here to hear this message. I mean, maybe that's just me. I know you've never done that. You guys are so much holier than I am. But I've done that. I'm like, oh, preacher, why didn't you preach this last week? Because, man, they really needed to hear this. No, we can't do that. I love that Jesus Christ in Revelation 2 gives multiple opportunities and reminders to repent. See, God is always gracious and willing. If you are ready to repent, he will receive you. Again, we're not talking about unto salvation. We're talking about the relationship. Okay, the relationship, the intimacy that is there. So how can we make God first in our lives? What are some practical ways we can display that to others and to myself and to the Lord? So making God first, number one, in my time, in my time. I'm just going to review these first two real quickly. Uh, we unpacked them more last week, but in my time. This is how I live my life, how we live every day. Romans 12, 1 and 2, very popular verses, talks about the idea that we need to be a living sacrifice. We said it last week, and it's true this week as well. Time is the most valuable thing we have been given. It is limited. We don't know how much of it we have. And once we spend it, once we use it, it's gone. Time is truly the most valuable and the most precious gift we've been given. Uh, we were talking last night after family game night, which was, by the way, amazing. If you didn't have a chance to be here, sorry you missed out. Um, I, I, I played a new game. Um, Farkle. I never played any Farkle players in here. Anyone like Farkle? Okay. I love the game. It was a lot of fun. I mean, I won, so that made it even more enjoyable. But, um, and I, I may have beat my wife and Pastor Keith, but that's just one game. So who knows what will happen the next time we play. But that did make me enjoy it a little more. Um, but it was a great time. But, but as we were kind of getting cleaned up a little bit, I was talking to, or actually, no, I'm sorry, it was at the beginning. I was talking to uh, Danielle uh, Borneson. And just talking about, uh, obviously, they have a beautiful boy. They just welcomed into the world recently. And so Timothy, just a great gift. Um, and so praise the Lord for that. But we were talking because I have, my oldest son is now 13. And we were just talking about that, like how quickly time goes by. And, and I know for some of you that are grandparents, you're like, oh, just wait, buddy. It's going to, man, it's going to keep going. And I understand that. But I was telling uh, Danielle and them, I was saying, you know, it's so funny when Anthony was real little and you know, obviously before Josiah came into the picture, uh, I always had people tell me, just enjoy every moment, enjoy every moment. Time flies, time flies. And listen, I know you mean well, but to a young couple, that gets really old. Like, it's like, 
I got it. Okay, I'll do my best. Thank you. You're better than me. I understand. No, but that's what we do, right? Like, I mean, it's like those two things. Enjoy it. It goes by fast. When are you having another one? Okay, just reel it in. Okay, so you know what my response was when people would say that to me? When you have another one, we'll have another one. Okay, so, and then usually it's, oh, no, I've done my time. I put my time in. But it's so true. Guys, listen, whether it's with children or grandchildren or just a relationship or just, just life, man, we blink. And time just goes by. And it's once it's gone, you can't go back and get more of that back, right? Like, what do we always say? What's happened has happened. It's done and over with. You can't go back. You can't change it. So what do we do? We look at the day we have ahead of us, the gift we've been given today. You know, the Bible says, boast not of tomorrow for you don't know what a day brings forth. We don't even know. We're not guaranteed tomorrow, guys. But guess what? We live like we are, aren't we? Man, we don't really live every moment. And by the way, I don't do this all the time. So I'm not preaching to you like I've got this figured out. We're all growing together. But the Bible is clear. We can put God first by putting him first in our time. This doesn't mean we don't take vacations. This doesn't mean we don't rest and relax. This doesn't mean we go 24-7, 365 every day. Go, 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 go. I don't believe that's investing our time wisely either. I believe God wants us to rest. God has given us, again, a principle of rest in Scripture, a day of rest. So we need to rest. We need to relax. Take vacations. Enjoy the life he's given you wisely. But also, when you have time to invest in someone else by sharing the gospel or to pray with someone or to get in God's word individually or to love on someone or serve someone or encourage someone or write an email or a text or a card. A card is this thing we put on paper. We used to put it in the mail. It's old school, okay? It's like a paper text. It's great. Whatever it is, right? We invest. Uh, Average life. Average life. The average person lives 27,375 days. 27,375 days. And so how are we as followers of Christ not spending those days, but investing those days into the work of the Lord? So time. How do I put God first and display that, that he's first in my life? Well, one of the ways could be through our time. Number two, our talents. Our talents. This is how we serve one another or the local church. First uh, Corinthians 12, four, jot it down. Uh, basically the Bible teaches us that every single believer has been given at least one, if not maybe more, a spiritual gifts at the moment of salvation. You receive a spiritual gift. Also, we have human talents that we've been given by God. By the way, a human talent comes, if you will, naturally, but I do believe it's still given by God for his glory. And so the musician, the athlete, whoever, the person that's just really, really able to figure things out academically, I believe those are talents and gifts of God. God has given those talents. Unfortunately, we don't always use those talents for his glory, but when we know Christ is our savior, we can use those talents as well as a spiritual gift for his glory. One of the biggest things we struggle with, with our gifts and talents individually as followers of Christ, is we sometimes question if our gifts and talents are as important or as useful as someone else's gifts or talents. My gift, if I had their gift, then I would do this. If I was as talented as them in this, I would do that. This is the excuse we tell ourselves and the lie we tell ourselves to make ourselves feel like we're not good enough to serve or to do whatever God's calling us to do. So it's really just disobedience, right? we think it's like a false humility or kind of a humility, but it's really, I should say a false humility. It's like, God, I would do that, but I'm just not smart enough. And God's going, okay, so you're insulting your creator to say that I didn't make you smart enough to do this or that, that I'm calling you to do. So now not only are you disobeying, you're blaspheming. 
and you're disregarding your creator, God. What did God tell Moses? But, but God, I, I can't speak well. I stutter. I have a stuttering problem. Moses, who made your tongue? Who made your mouth? See, when we do these things and we think these things through, we're actually insulting our creator. So rather than do that, realize that God has created you with purpose. Do you know the Bible says that he doesn't just create us, he forms us. The word formed actually means created with distinct purpose, a unique purpose. So how has God gifted you? And how are we using those gifts to serve him and others? It's not the question of, are my gifts good enough? The question is, am I using my gifts for his glory and my talents for his glory? So how can I put God first in my life? We do it through our time. We do it through our talents. Moving into the new material this morning, um, we want to look at two more practical examples. And before we get to this next one, I need you guys to do a little exercise for me here. Not get up and jump in Jack's exercise, but I mean, I guess if you want to, whatever. But um, I want you to do this. I want you to say this after I say this, okay? So I'm going to say it, and then you're going to repeat it, okay? Are you ready? God doesn't need my money. Okay. North Goodland doesn't need my money. The third way that we show God is first in our lives is through our tithe or how we handle and view our finances. And I wanted to set the stage with that because I feel like there's some believers and unfortunately some churches have done this. They've made such a point of hammering on money and tithes and offerings and all of that, that they've almost made people think that that's what it's all about. And it's not because here's the truth. God owns the cattle on a thousand hills. He doesn't need your money. God is able to do what God can do with resources you can't even fathom. But you know what a blessing is that comes as a follower of Christ when I realize that not only is my time gifted to me by God for his glory, not only are my talents and my gifts a gift from God for his glory, my finances are a gift from God for his glory. We can't separate those. We can't say, well, my time and my talents are one thing and my money is another thing. No, 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 no. The Bible doesn't teach that kind of Christianity. The Bible doesn't teach sacred and secular living. Everything for the believer is sacred. And so my money, my time, and my talents, they're all God's. He's just gifted it to me and said, now go be a good steward with what I've given you. The word steward could also be the word manager. Go manage well what I've given you. Not unto salvation. Well, I guess I'm not going to get in because I didn't give enough. I'm not going to get in because I didn't serve enough. No, no, no. That's, that's works-based salvation. The Bible says that we're saved by grace. But how we view our finances is hugely important to putting God first. Go over to Matthew chapter 6. Now, there's tons of verses about finances. There are tons of verses in even the New Testament and Old Testament about how we handle our money. But I want to use this as kind of a starting point. It's just one verse that's always spoken to me to help us understand the position our finances should have in our lives. Matthew chapter 6 and verse 24. Now, this is part of a greater, amazing moment. Uh, many of you know Matthew 6 falls um, kind of towards the middle end of when the passage we're going to read. It's kind of towards the middle end of the Sermon on the Mount. So the Sermon on the Mount goes from Matthew chapter 5 all the way to the end of chapter 7. 
Okay, and it's amazing when you open up Matthew chapter 8 and he says that all the people were astonished at his teaching. So all these things, when you read 5, 6, and 7, it, many of your Bibles will have little kind of like broken up segments. And it will say different headings over each one about finances, tithing, different things, um, uh, fasting, those kind of things. Because Jesus preaches this sermon and he covers so much ground in this sermon. It's truly amazing. But I want to, excuse me, focus in on Matthew chapter 6 verse 24. And again, we can read all the way through 34 and see some amazing truth. I encourage you to do it on your own. For time's sake, I just want to focus on 24. No man can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other. Or else he will hold to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. The word mammon is finances, money, uh, something along those lines, however you want to translate it. So basically... Jesus is really direct in how we handle our finances or how we view our finances. And what are the two options? To summarize, either you serve and worship your money or you serve and worship the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. You you can't do both. If I worship my possessions, I'm not worshiping God and putting him first. If I realizing my finances were given to me by God, then I put him first and the finances are just a tool to see his work and his will done in the world around me. Uh, Jesus is pretty direct. Do you, do you own your finances or do your finances own you? Do you own your possessions or do your possessions own you? Do you own your stuff or does your stuff own you? Do we suffer from the same issue the rich young ruler suffered from? Came to Jesus. You guys know the story. I got to get going here because it's 1130. And if I don't finish, Pastor Greg is going to make fun of me because I made it a four-week series after all. So we'll have to get going. But... He actually, I think he's doubting me whether I can do it or not. I think he's got some kind of a bet going in the church somewhere about whether I can make it happen or not. The rich young ruler comes to Jesus. And he comes in such arrogance, right, and pride. I mean, he just, he thought he was it. His possessions, he thought he was the man. And he comes to Jesus and basically says, what do I got to do to be saved? I'm summarizing here. Jesus' response is what? Someone tell me, what does Jesus say first? Not sell everything, not second. What's he say first? What does the law say, right? Keep the law. What does the law say? And he goes, oh, I've done all that since I was a kid. Red flag. I've kept all 613 commandments since I was a kid. Red flag. There's this one about not lying in there. I don't know if you've caught that one. About bearing false witness. I think you're doing that. So what does Jesus say when this man... By the way, speaking to the, to the Son of God who will die and rise again for our sins. The perfect, sinless, spotless Lamb of God who's going to die, by the way, for his sins. He comes in this arrogance and this pride. Jesus says, okay, sell everything you have, give it to the poor, come and follow me. The Bible says he left sad because he basically had great wealth. You know what Jesus did? And I always have to point this out. He says, what does the law say? Read the gospels. It's amazing. When somebody would come in arrogance and pride, it was law. When someone would come in humility, it was grace. Does Jesus give Nicodemus law or grace? He gives him grace. You see this over and over again. When there's a, a humility from the person seeking, he doesn't need to. And Bible says this. What's the purpose of the law? To break the heart of the sinner. To show the sinner, I have sinned, I need repentance, I need forgiveness. That's the purpose of the law, to show, here's God's standard, here's you. The law doesn't save us, the law reveals our need for a savior. 
And so Jesus demonstrated that same principle all throughout the Gospels. And so this rich young ruler leaves sad because he had great wealth. Do you notice Jesus doesn't just say, believe on me and you'll be fine. Just believe. No, he says, here, I need you to do something. I need you to show me that you're going to put that second to me. But see, here's the thing. Jesus knew the man's heart. And he knew his heart was more in love with this stuff than it ever was going to be for Jesus. See, he gave him basically the first commandment. Thou shalt not have other gods before me. Have you done the law? Keep the law. Oh, I've done that since I'm a youth. Let me give you an example of how you're not doing that currently. You sell everything you have. Who's your real God? Who are you really going to serve? See, this is how real and direct Jesus gets with us. By the way, this is a potentially new convert. He doesn't sugarcoat anything. He just tells them, look, man, this is what it is. I love that Jesus is direct with us. I don't want him to sugarcoat things. I want him to tell me what he really wants me to do, how he wants me to think, and how he wants me to live. And with our finances, it's crucial. He resisted surrendering to Christ by giving all he had to the poor and following Christ. Again, note that faith is displaying in the following of Christ, not merely in just lip service to Christ. When we realize God is first, we submit our wealth to him to be directed as he chooses. Luke 6.38, you can jot that down. We are called to be faithful stewards of our finances that he has given us. Again, which is true of our time and our talents. To just kind of walk this out a little bit, I know we could go a lot deeper into this. And if you have any questions, please see me. If you want a copy of my notes, I can email them to you, send them to you, whatever. That's fine. But we need to understand this. In the New Testament, again, principle pattern. In the New Testament, we don't see a direct command to tithe as we do in the Old Testament. We don't see a direct command to tithe. And in fact, the few times Jesus brings up tithing or tithing is talked about, it's primarily seen as someone using it to bolster their spiritual resume. The Pharisees would say, look how many times I've tithed. Or Jesus spoke about it in the sense of, you've done these kind of tithes, but that's not acceptable. Show me that, show me that heart is the idea. So again, we're going to unpack this, but we don't have a direct command to tithe in the New Testament, the word tithe in the Old Testament directly means or translates to one-tenth. One-tenth. This is why a lot of times people will say we're supposed to give 10%. Because the word tithe means a tenth. So a tenth is 10%. So we give a tenth and a 10%. Again, in the Old Testament, however, if you look at all of the things they were asked to give, you would be closer to 23 to 26% in total tithe and offerings. So again... Should we give unto the Lord? Absolutely. Is it okay to give a tenth and 10% of what you make? Absolutely. The principle is there, giving unto the Lord, and there's nothing wrong with that. But some people have made the tenth the important part. And they've forgotten it's about the heart of the giver, not the amount you give. And I think we've done that. And, and by the way, I, I know our church years ago was guilty of this. Many churches, many are guilty of this. And what happens is we read that verse in the Old Testament. We go, wait a minute, but we got to give a tenth. And we rip that verse. Here's another word, context. We rip that verse out of its context and we shove it on the New Testament church. And we go, you better give your tenth or God's going to be angry with you. And meanwhile, God is in heaven going, man, I just want your heart. I just want first. And then I'll do all the rest with the spirits working and we'll, we'll be fine on the percentages. Jesus tells a story about a woman who gave two mites. Do we know if that was her tenth? Nope. What we do know is all she had. 
and she gave it. And you know what Jesus says? She gave more than all of you gave combined. Why, was, why would Jesus say that? Because it's not about the percentage primarily. It's about the heart of the giver to say, no, Lord, I'm going to give unto you as you've led me to give. See, another problem with this whole tenth thing is sometimes we think I only have to give a tenth. As though somehow I gave my tenth, now the 90s mind to do with what I want. It's true. I mean, God's going to give you grace. You can use it however you want. That's the whole point of being a steward and called to be a manager. But when we go into it with that mindset, I believe we're robbing ourselves of some blessings. Rather, we should go into it saying, 100% of this is God's. He's given it to me to use wisely. I've prayed. I've looked at where we're at. I believe we can give this. There's some sacrifice to it, but I believe we can give this faithfully and consistently by God's grace. So God, help me to do that. Maybe it's 2%, 5%, 50%. I don't know. That's between you and the Lord, the Bible says. So I want to really make sure we're clear on this. I'm not saying we don't give. I'm not saying we don't support local ministries and missionaries and all of that. What I'm saying is, and I'm not even saying you can't give a tenth. That's fine. I tell new believers who are like, hey, I want to start tithing, but I don't know where to start. I always recommend, hey, maybe prayerfully consider starting with a tenth. It's a good round figure. It's something we can work with. Pray about that. But I also believe, and this is maybe just maybe more my opinion, so you can disagree with me on this one. The rest of it you can't, but this one you can. I'm just kidding. I've met people who are in debt, massively in debt. And they take from paying off their debts so that they will meet the 10% tithe. And I question, what's the better testimony there? Should we give unto the Lord? Yes, we should. But I would look at it this way. Wouldn't it make, wouldn't God rather us get out of debt by giving 4% or 5% to the ministries of the church or missionaries, whatever, take that other 5%, dump that back into our debt, get out of debt so we can give 25% to the ministry? You see what I'm saying? So we got to pray about this. We got to think through this. We can't get so locked into these percentages and start realizing it's about the heart and the relationship. Remember all the way back, what's our foundation? The relationship with Christ. That's the foundation. And so again, when it comes to our finances, how we view our finances directly reflects how we view God, God's position in our lives. One author said this, giving has never been an accounting issue. Giving has never been an accounting issue. It's always been a heart issue. So I want to look at real quickly. You can jot this down. 2 Corinthians 9. 2 Corinthians 9, 1 through 15. is an amazing passage. Paul writes to the Corinthian church dealing with this idea of giving. And I want to give you some principles here, some things that some benefits that we see Paul speaks of here. And again, for time's sake, I'm going to encourage you to read uh, 2 Corinthians 9, 1 through 15 when you have time. And I'm going to give you kind of the benefit and then the verses that connect to that, okay? So what are some benefits when I give as a follower of Christ? Well, the first thing we have to know is that your giving will provoke others to give. We see this in verses 1 through 5. Basically, your fire fires them up. Now, this doesn't mean we, we tell people so much what we're giving, okay? Uh, we don't rip out the giving statement and go, I'm obviously a better Christian than you. Bottom line, buddy, bottom line, Okay. It's not that we tell people, well, I gave X amount of dollars and God blessed me with X amount of dollars. Because, by the way, it doesn't always come back in finances. Okay? That's another thing that really preaches good on TV. You know, 
send us your $100 seed gift and we'll pray over it and you'll get blessed tenfold. Yeah, okay. You try that, see how that works. I would encourage you not to do that, okay? If you're going to waste your money, at least maybe invest in something that can get you some, some feedback there. See, we preach is good, but it doesn't really match Scripture. Will God bless sometimes financially when you give financially? Absolutely he will. But sometimes in my life, let me just be real with you, we've been in ministry now for, I don't know, uh, 15 years doing ministry, youth ministry and senior pastor ministry. And I can tell you there's times where we've given our time or our talents or financially, and it's not come back financially. It came back in a box of groceries on our porch. Uh, It came back in someone filling up. I think it was a Sunday morning. I think it was a Sunday morning. I used to leave my keys in the sound booth. Back before TJ said, get this stuff out of here. Okay, it doesn't belong here. Okay. And I made a comment in the beginning part of the sermon that we were driving to church and low on gas. The gaslight came on and we were praying. And our faith was never greater going to church than when we were praying, Lord, get us back to town so we can get some gas. Okay. Someone in the church went and got my keys. They knew they were there. Went and got my keys out of sound booth. Went and filled my van up. Came back to church, dropped it off. I got in the van. I started up. I'm like, why do I have a full tank of gas? Didn't say a word to me about it. I still don't know who did it. I have an idea who did it, but I don't know who did it. And you might say, oh, but preacher, that was just them being a blessing. Exactly. God's blessing to you doesn't just come the way you want it to come. Sometimes God goes, I know you need this. Here, I'll provide this. And you've been faithful in these things, so I'll bless you in this way. We got to realize that God will bless in different ways. So when we're sharing that we're giving, whether it would be time, talents, or finances, we're not sharing an amount or we're not sharing the dollar signs. We're not bragging or boasting. We're just saying, man, I've been so faithful to God by his grace. And look at how he's blessing me. Again, not so that we're blessed, but why do we get blessed so we can give to others? Okay. So your fire fires them up. That's the idea. Your giving will bless you. We talked about that a little bit already. Your giving will bless you. Uh, Again, not always financial. Um, How about the joy that we get from knowing that we gave? God just allows us to feel that joy and that that assurance that we did what he called us to do. There's a great blessing there. Uh, Your giving will meet needs. Your giving will meet needs, not just here to Lapeer County, but to the world around us through missions. Um, We sponsor and we support our missionaries $100 a month. We have 11 missionaries that we support monthly. Okay? That, that money doesn't just come from nowhere, right? Uh, responsibilities here, curriculum, these kind of things. Uh, it's amazing to see that when we give, we can meet needs of the Lord. Your giving will glorify God. When you give and you sacrificially give unto him, it honors him. And what does that mean when we honor him? It means, God, I'm putting you above my stuff. I'll give because you're worth more than this stuff. I've always been amazed when... We see what we see in the book of Acts, the early church being so free to give, which leads kind of to the next idea here, the benefit. Your giving will unite God's people. Your giving will unite God's people. That's verses 14 and 15. So your giving will bless you, verses 6 through 11 of 2 Corinthians 9. Your giving will meet needs, verse 12 of 2 Corinthians 9. Your giving will glorify God, verse 13. And your giving will unite God's people. What do we read in the early church? So that they brought all their sold all their possessions, not all of them, but some of them sold their possessions, gather all the money together, put it before the apostles feet and says, here, this is for whatever we need to do for the Lord. That was something that united that church together and solidified that church together. Isn't it amazing that the rich young ruler denied a direct command from Jesus to do something, but the early church, just as a mere overflow of a relationship with Christ, did it freely. Did you ever think about that? 
rich young ruler, Jesus directly says, do this. They say, he says, basically no, by walking away. The early church never commanded to do it. Just in the overflow of the relationship said, we should do this. We feel led to do this and did it. See, that's the difference between this legalistic law, do, do, do. And this free grace relationship-based salvation where we go, God, I'm just going to live in a relationship with you. And whatever you call me to do, I'll do whenever you call me to do it. See, that's the difference. So we see that we put God first in our time, in our talents, and in our tithe or how we view our finances. Lastly, I want one more point to make here. So we see also we put God first in our thinking. 2 Corinthians chapter 10. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, one of my favorite verses. Our time, our talents, our tithe, and our thinking. This is how we direct our minds. How we direct our minds. 2 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 5. Again, great context here. I encourage you to read the whole past, the whole chapter. But verse 5, casting down... Paul says here, the Apostle Paul writing to the church of Corinth, casting down imaginations and every high thing that exalted itself against the knowledge of God. And here's the key. And bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. Taking into captivity every thought unto the obedience of Christ. This is such a powerful truth that in Christ we can actually take captive every thought to the obedience of Christ. So what does that look like when I put God first in my thinking? I'm going to take captive any thought that doesn't fall under Christ's leadership or command or direction. If I have a thought that's contrary to the things of Christ, I'm taking it captive. I'm binding that thought and I'm removing that thought. It means we take captive wrong thinking. And by his grace and the work of the Holy Spirit, this is possible. We conform that thinking to the gospel. This is what Romans 12 talks about, right? Being transformed by the renewing of your mind. Not conformed to the world, but being transformed by the Spirit. Being conformed to the world does not mean what you wear on the outside. Right? It doesn't mean that. Some pre- people in churches have preached this. It's not about that. It's about thinking as the world thinks. Meaning, I'm driven and consumed by the fears and the stress and the desires and the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life. Like, that's consuming me if I'm thinking like the world. But I take those thoughts captive in Christ, remove those things, because I want my thoughts to be in obedience to the things of God and unto the gospel. Wrong thinking is when I allow myself to dwell on thoughts that are not pleasing to the Lord. Basically, I'm not thinking Philippians 4, 8 thoughts. So you want to jot that one down. Philippians 4, 8 thoughts. That's where Paul says, think on these things. And I think some of us, I know myself included at times. And I think nowadays more than ever, we need to make sure we're taking captive the thoughts that were not pleasing to the Lord. This also happens again when I think either too low or too high of myself. Too low or too high of myself. We must think of ourselves as Christ thinks of us. Romans 12, 3. So some different verses there to study through for the week, but it's important we understand this. It's basically wrong thinking that I submit to the gospel when I'm not dwelling on the right kind of thoughts. I'm not submitting those thoughts to him thinking on these things. And I'm also thinking too low or too high of myself. Here's a reality. Many of us struggle with this. We think we're either not good enough 
or we're too good. We're at one end of the spectrum or the other. God, I know you love me, but I'm still a horrible person. Or God, you're so lucky that I let you save me. Like, it's like, what are we talking about here? What? Like we come into heaven, we're like, here I am. And you're welcome, right? Like, it's like, what are you talking about? When we realize that in Jesus Christ, we were created and formed with purpose. And I'm so, listen, I know I said it earlier, but I'm so excited for this, this video that we're going to be showing on February 6th. And I really hope you'll make time to watch it because I do believe that for a long time now, people have been convinced that they're just an accident. Like a biological oops. Just kind of, there you are. This premortal ooze that created you. Do you know what the problem with that at its greatest level is it removes the wonder of creation that you were created by God with worth and value. Do you know why you have intrinsic value and worth? Not based on what you look like, your gender, how much money's in your bank account, what you do for a living, how successful you are in the world. Do you know why you just have value and worth? Because you were created by God and you bear the image of God according to Genesis. You are an image bearer of God. Now, in sin, when we fall into sin, we're born into sin, that image is, is, is perverted to a degree because now we're not living as those image bearers of God. But the Bible never says that we cease to be image bearers of God. And that's the beauty of what salvation brings. It restores us to who we really can be in God and through Christ. And so every single person in this room, I don't care what you've been told. I don't care if you were told you were an accident. I don't care if you were told your mom and dad didn't even want you. I don't care. I mean, I've heard stories about individuals that were, uh, there was an attempted abortion and they happened to live through it and those kind of things. I don't care what you've been told about why you got here, how you got here. You are valuable and you matter. And if you're fighting for acceptance and if your mind is dwelling on the acceptance of others, stop allowing that to happen in your life. Realize that through Christ, you can be accepted fully as you are redeemed, saved and restored to that relationship with God. You see, our thinking is crucial in how we use our time, use our talents and use our finances. How we think about these things matters. So don't think too high of yourself. Don't think too low of yourself. You are valuable and worthy and yet in need of a savior. So this is the other thing. When we start saying that you're valuable and worthy, people go, oh man, I'm pretty awesome. <laughs> like, I mean, I'm, I mean, I'm pretty, I'm, I'm pretty much it. Pastor Tom used to always say you're hot snot on a cold platter. You know, I've never seen, I don't know what that means, but it's good. It preaches well. So I just keep it in the holster ready to go sometimes. We think that though. And it's like, no, no, no. When you realize that you were created by God, but yet because of your sin, there's a, a disconnect in that relationship that you are not worthy to come into his presence because of your sin. And then the Lord Jesus Christ came and died for you. Yes, you have value and worth, but you also have a great need. You can't get there on your own. You can't enter heaven's courts by being good enough, going to church enough, writing enough tie checks. See, here's the thing. When we put God first as followers of Christ, my time, my talents, and my tithe reflect and glorify God. But outside of Christ, my time, my talents, and my tithe will never gain me a relationship with God. See, if we try to do it the other way, well, but God, I gave to the church. I spent a lot of time helping, encouraging people. And I, I really invested a lot of time in people and I served them and I gave a lot of money to things. And that's great, but you did it out of order. 
That's not going to gain you salvation. As a follower of Christ, those things, when out of the overflow of our relationship, will glorify God, honor him, and bless others. Are we putting God first in our thinking, how we see ourselves, and how we see others? I think we need to start thinking on others the way Jesus thinks on them. We need to see them as people that he gave his life for and that he rose again for. And that if we would just take the time to stop judging them and condemning them and criticizing them for their sin because they're sinners and just went to them and said, Jesus loves you and he wants to save you. And here's how he saved me. I think we would see a big difference in our lives and in the lives of others. I know that things are wrong and we can speak out against those wrongs. But at the core of it as a follower of Christ, before I start condemning someone for their sin, I better start reminding them of grace. And showing them that their sin is real, but there's someone that came and gave a penalty and paid a penalty for their sin that they could be redeemed and freed from that sin. So do you believe God is calling you to put him first in any of these areas? Maybe you would say yes to all of them, as we said the first week. Oh God, I want you to be Lord of my life. And that's awesome that we would pray that. But again, what practical ways... Are we saying, God, I want you to be Lord of my life and in a realistic way, in a practical way, be Lord of my tithe, Lord of my time, be first in this way or another way. Again, I would encourage you to pray for the strength and wisdom to start with just one of these things. God, be Lord of my life, yes, but Lord, may I put you first in this area. Remember, when we put our relationship with Christ as top priority, making him first in these areas and others, it becomes habitual and easy. The more we put God first, the easier it becomes. I want to ask you to close your eyes and bow your heads right there where you are. And we're going to have a time of invitation, just a time for you to respond to what God is doing. Uh, The band's going to come and and lead us in a song of worship in just a moment. So maybe you would come and bend a knee and maybe you want to come and pray and just say, God, I want you to be first in my life. And I'm asking that you allow me to put you first in this area specifically. As you pray right there where you are with your heads bowed and just no one looking around out of respect for each other, I pray that you know Christ as your Savior. I pray that you've received him. But, but my, my encouragement to you is if you've never received Christ, maybe you've gone to church your whole life, maybe this is your first time in a church, I don't know. Maybe you grew up in a Christian home. Let me just tell you, based on God's word, your parents' relationship with Christ will not save you. It's a personal relationship with Jesus Christ that that forgives us of our sins and that moves us from outside the family of God into the family of God. And so I just want you right there where you are to evaluate your own relationship, your own standing with God. Do you know him? Have you confessed your sins, repented of those sins, trusted in Christ for forgiveness? Have Have you made a decision like that at some point in your life? If the answer is yes, then then you know Christ is your Savior. Then I would ask, how are you displaying that to others and to yourself and to the Lord? Are you putting him first in your life? Maybe you would be honest enough between you and God this morning to say, Lord, I've not been doing that. In my thinking, I'm not putting you first. And in this other area, I'm not putting you first. Maybe it's an area that we didn't even talk about, an area of relationships or something along those lines. And, And whatever it is, maybe you would come and pray and say, God, Give me the strength and grace to know that I can put you first in this area. I want to glorify you. I want to honor you in all things. Thank you, Lord, that you don't save me based on what I do for you. Thank you, Lord, that you saved me because you are gracious and loving and chose to offer your son to me. And so whatever God is doing, would you respond as we...
worship in just a moment. Father, we praise you for your grace, your love. We ask, Lord, that you would just go before us this morning, open our hearts and minds to what you have for us, that we would respond to you as you desire us to. Father, whether we come forward and pray or whether it's there in our seats, I pray that we would just acknowledge you as first place in our lives, not just for today, not for this this week, but for this whole year coming up. But Lord, we can't really decide to put you first for the whole year until we decide to put you first in this moment today. And so, Father, again, thank you for your grace and your mercy and for lifting us up. Pray that we'd be stewards of all the things you've given us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you look this way just for a moment? Would you stand to your feet as the band leads us in a song of invitation? If you'd like to come and pray, maybe as a couple, individual, family, you want to come and bow a knee and just respond to him, maybe there in your seats. Whatever God is doing, would you respond to him this morning?